Dogs, swab the decks and hoist the sails. The guns on board be needing some proper manning. Pieces of eight and a fine wench on your arm. If you work, be not too shoddy. Careful not to flounder too badly, though, or you may have to dance the hempen jig. As we see you to Davy Jones, the Jeffy, my boy, on with the show. Shiver me timbers. To our listeners from across all regions of the planet, welcome once again aboard the Robin Hood, flagship to the world's one and only cooperatively inspired charity podcast network, WPRPN. Live streaming today, somewhere off the blossoming spring equinox shores of the South Korean Peninsula. You're listening to episode 101 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. I'm your host as always, Ship's Chief Communications Officer, Jaffe Ryder. Capping off our epic March 2018 schedule, host of the Cold War Podcast, Ryan Llewellyn, joins us this week via Des Moines, Iowa. With our ship scouts first managing to find Ryan via Minds.com, we quickly decided to reach out in extending an invitation to be part of our weekly show. As it stands, his podcast project largely reflects upon the history of the Cold War, often viewing the times via the lens of popular culture. It's in this spirit we now hope to explore the historic 1972 Russia-Canada Hockey Summit, along with that very same year's Icelandic chess showdown between American challenger Bobby Fischer and reigning world champion Russia's Boris Spassky. Time allowing, other topics will include anything from JFK and the Korean War to Hitler's alleged secret escape from a thoroughly ravaged and bombed out spring 1945 Berlin. And we are, of course, really hoping that we do have time to get around to addressing the issue, or at least taking a look at the possibility of whether Hitler did in fact escape Berlin back in the spring of 1945. Not sure if Ryan's fully prepared and equipped able to uh, respond to that in any major way, but we'll see. A lot of great stuff on the go here this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I am, of course, your host, as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. This is episode 101 of Pi Radio Podcast, and we should hopefully have not only Ryan standing by at the ready, but also Dustin Fox, courtesy of Zero... Radio, formerly Anonymous Radio Redux. Dustin, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm right here. Let's see if we can get you to uh, make your way up into the crow's nest. This is your uh, this is your first chance, actually. The captain just recently promoted you from the position of powder monkey, so I'm not sure uh, if you got a really 
solid feel of things at this point, but hopefully you can make your way up there without too much difficulty. How are things looking from your vantage point? I'm all out of metaphors at the moment, Captain, but uh, things are looking good. Things are looking good, comrade. Arg. Clear sailing for this week's installment? Absolutely. Good-looking water is ahead, man. Okay, we'll have you there in the crow's nest and almost a co-host capacity, really able to keep a keen eye on what's happening there over on YouTube via the live streaming chat. In the meantime, Ryan, do we still have you on the line? Yes. Yes, Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, that's great. Well, you managed to make it, and I know we booked this. Jeez, I don't know. It's been a couple months now. Been building up to having you drop by and join us here so that's great you finally made it and this is all thanks to minds.com really was where we first uh, managed to cross each other's paths you're kind of a, a fan and a bit of a booster of the platform from what i understand yeah i have now i've been doing the cold war cast for a while and putting some of the stuff on facebook but it's kind of seems like on a platform that big it's easy to get kind of lost in the shuffle where as a platform like Minds, um, you're really connecting with a lot of people that are actually interested in what you say. So I've been doing pretty well with Minds, I think, uh, recently. I do like the platform. Oh, yeah, it's great. Open sourced, uh, censorship free. The hashtag system they have in place is pretty decent for the most part. Although I've been kind of keeping an eye on the way that with the ranking of the top and the latest and the way that things are coming out in the end, kind of make me sometimes scratch my head wondering why certain content finds itself at the top of the feed and other items which you would think would appear first are being kind of uh, lost. I'm not sure if they would use right. suppressed necessarily. There might be some kind of uh, skullduggery, <laughs> jiggery pokery uh, <laughs> taking place there at the back end of things. Who really knows? But on yeah, the whole, you never know. Pretty- you never know, hey? especially now we got that uh, <laughs> the Mines token recently launched. I'm not sure if you've been following that or not, but have you managed to connect that up with your phone? Yeah, actually, I just did that last night. And um, that's something that, I don't know, I know a little bit about crypto. It's something I kind of kicked myself for not jumping on when I first heard about it. But man, here we are. I guess at least I have something now. <laughs> well, wouldn't it be something if, if actually Mines tokens ended up outpacing bitcoin which you think about within the grander scheme of things is quite possible you know if people start to value it more it could very well happen i'm a big fan of altcoin because this bitcoin thing is a little too much for me to swallow frankly it's a little too rich for my blood at the present moment i'm not getting on the bitcoin train anytime soon but altcoin i can get behind that for sure yeah, yeah, I've got my concerns about Bitcoin. I, I get the point of blockchain, and I think that's something that's going to be very big going forward. But at this point, it seems like people are into Bitcoin as an investment. And when you see something like that going on, um, to me, that says that it can only go down from there. Um, I think it'll level off at some point and you know, be something that's that's viable and here to stay. But I don't know. I'm just kind of suspect of where it's at now. Uh, granted, it's gone down quite a bit from its highs, but I don't know. I just think it's, um, I have my reservations, I guess, about um, the prices right now. 
Yeah, as likely well you should. So a lot of hype. And uh, as you say, the leveling out and just the bursting of the bubble. I haven't really been following things that closely. But, you know, as with anything, what goes up must come down. But in the meantime, you know, we've got you here for the next, well, we've already burnt up 10 minutes just with that uh, little introduction there. So one of the first questions I've got for you, actually, you're based Mm -hmm. out of Des Moines, Iowa. And I believe I drove through there. That's where the four, kind of the intersection of the four states. I'm not sure. Is it Nebraska? Really close to Nebraska there, of course. Yeah, the Nebraska border is about um, about an hour and a half away. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm from so, Canada. Yeah, it's not too far. But I'm from oh, Canada. Okay. But I was listening to you talk about like it was the I-80 or I-35, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I remember, I remember. Uh, Des Moines, it's basically where I-80, that's one that goes from San Francisco to somewhere on the East Coast. I'm not exactly sure. Then I-35 goes north-south through the middle of the country. Um, it'll take you to Duluth, Minnesota, and then down to the Mexican border. And I guess I've driven pretty much all of it, except for, I guess, a couple hundred miles or whatever between San Antonio and the Mexican border. But yeah, we're kind of right there in the middle, squished between a couple larger cities, I guess. And we're just here out on our own, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's beautiful country. It's just beautiful. I just loved, you know, the cornfields and just the, the open, the rolling landscape. And it's like God's country, really. So... Yeah, it, it can be pretty nice. If you get a little bit further west, it starts to get like, you know, out into like central Nebraska, western Nebraska, it gets kind of dry and flat. But at this part, we get a lot of rainfall. So, you know, you have green and just kind of gently rolling hills and a tree every now and then. So, yeah, it, it can be some pretty nice country at this point. You yourself are not a professional historian or academic or the big word academician. I, I, I can never get that one out. As, as yeah, most people. academic or yeah, I'm definitely not one of those. I do have a bachelor's degree and just general studies. Now, like a lot of people of my age and generation, I kind of floundered around community college um, shortly after high school and, you know, spent a lot of time skipping class and drinking beer, smoking cigarettes and all that. But when I got a little bit older, I kind of buckled down a little bit in life and took a lot of correspondence classes through University of Indiana. Um, they had a liberal arts program, and it was kind of nice because my employer paid for it. Um, somehow I convinced them that it was relevant to my job, which I, I work in a tire factory, so you know it, it's not. But they paid for it, and over a couple of years, I spent a lot of my free time doing schoolwork, a lot of it to do with history and so forth. So I guess I do have a degree, but I wouldn't consider myself an academic. And I definitely don't have a, a history degree or anything like that. I think as far as what I do as a history podcaster, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. For one, I think sometimes the podcasts or you know lectures, YouTube videos or whatever to do with history sometimes they can be a little bit too dense. And the way I like to look at things is, so you have the timeline of history, and some people like to take out a small segment of it and completely dissect it. But to me, I like to take that segment of uh, time or whatever, and look at it and look how it relates to the larger, the, um, you know, the other segments of time too, instead of just um, going through all the minutiae. I think a lot of times, if you get bogged down in statistics, facts, I don't know. It, sometimes history just turns to static. 
So I like to speak more in the terms of bigger ideas, I guess, than bogged down to, you know, who did what on this specific day. And I think not having that formal academic background helps me in that regard. Makes you more of a renegade. (laughs) Yeah, it it kind of does. It kind of does. Maverick uh, kind of definitely. You're your own person, own man, an independent Mm -hmm. researcher then, obviously, who just, I guess, one of the things I was going to ask you was, what got you going on the history path, though, in particular? Why not some other area of study? What really was it about uh, historical research that managed to turn your crank? Well, I've always been interested in this kind of thing for almost as long as I can remember. Um, when I was a kid, I was really into geography. Um, sounds kind of funny, but I remember on my either fourth or fifth birthday, I wanted a globe for my birthday. And my grandma got me a globe and I would just spend hours just looking at this thing, you know, looking up, you know, these places and kind of wondering what they're like and eventually figuring out, you know, kind of what these places were about, their histories, their cultures and so forth. And it does sound funny, but yeah, I think that one item has influenced me quite a bit. But throughout school, I just always had a knack for history, you know, mainly from the military side of things, I suppose you would say. And it's just something that's always kind of stuck with me. And I don't know, sometimes when I think about these events, you know, that you might read about or hear about or whatever, I just start to make connections in my head. And one day it kind of dawned on me, I could do a podcast about Cold War history. And one of the angles that I like to go through it is telling the story through the pop culture of the time. Because I think a lot of it, we might look at it and kind of write it off as, um, you know, just silly pop culture or whatever. But looking at it from the historical perspective, it says a lot about the times. Now, my main influence for that is back in 2012, um, I actually I wrote a book that's on Amazon. It's called Wolverine's Reflections on Red Dawn. And what it is, it's about, I think, a little bit less than 25 essays. And it covers topics that kind of pertain to the movie, you know, just a little bit of the history just some of my analysis, character analysis, and, you know, cinematography stuff and so forth. And I had a lot of fun with that. And I got a lot of good feedback on it, too, actually. You know, not enough to put me on the New York Times bestseller list or anything like that, of course. But I had fun with that. And it dawned on me, I I guess, several years later that, like, yeah, I did this about Red Dawn. But there's a lot of other things that kind of tie into history that I like that I could talk about. And it just kind of so happens that the Cold War is the common denominator for a lot of these ones that really stand out for me. Speaking of Red Dawn, what are your thoughts on the remake, the sequel that came out just a couple of years oh, ago? Oh boy, not much. <laughs> what, what a bunch of garbage. You know, I, I never yeah. saw it, but I tell you the whole, from just from a, you know, speaking of pop culture and whatnot, this is mm-hmm. the politics, the Hollywood studio politics. Oh God, we don't want, initially they had it set up, of course, it's the Chinese invading America, which yeah. is plausible. I mean, it's already happening yeah. well, yeah. well underway, of course. And then it's like, oh, that's not PC. So what we'll do is we'll demonize the North Koreans and yeah. have them, well, which if- I mean, how realistic is that North Korea invading America? Give me a break. Yeah, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I think, an issue of political correctness. At the time, if you think about it, I think that was 2012. China was really on the rise, and the Chinese box office was, well, a good growth market. So I think it was probably more financial than uh, political correctness. 
you know, maybe, yeah, the North Koreans are kind of an easy target. You know, what are they going to say back? But yeah, the Red Dawn remake, it's basically like Dawson's Creek with guns. That's about, you know, it, um, the original Red Dawn is a pretty, really gritty, you know, there's like death and starvation and deprivation and so forth. And there's none of that in the new Red Dawn. I think what they wanted to do with the original Red Dawn is show the American audience what war looks like up close. I guess this is kind of the punchline. We say that Red Dawn is like a joke and unrealistic, but what happened in Red Dawn happened to a lot of the world in the 20th century. And I think the remake definitely does not hit those same chords. And boy, it just wasn't good. But one thing I will say that was kind of cool about the remake is the opening sequence. Now, in the original Red Dawn, they flash up. It's just text. It says, like, um, NATO dissolves, um, bad wheat harvest, and so forth. But in the remake, they had a, a kind of a cool video collage of news events leading up to the scenario that they came up with. And one thing that was kind of cool about it is a lot of the clips were real news clips they used. So I thought that was kind of cool. But beyond that, didn't deliver. <laughs> no, uh, I didn't, like, once again, even bother to make the effort to watch the movie. It, for me, was that offensive, frankly. The whole, just the idea, once again, North Korea would uh, invade America is beyond my realm yeah. of plausibility but what i was going to ask you was how widely if at all did the movie play in uh chinese theaters following the reformation or, or reevaluation? just kind of uh i guess they did have had to do a lot of uh refilming really with cgi i guess just Pro yeah probably i think that's what i heard that that's what they had to do erase um, the chinese and uh yeah get those yeah throw a different uniform on them yeah, yeah. mm-hmm yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it did in China. guess I would assume probably better than if the Chinese were the bad guy. But then again, if you think about it, if they kept the Chinese as the bad guy, it would be controversial in China. So maybe people would be more inclined to see it. So I don't know. You win some, you lose some, I guess. There's, I don't think, any way that it would make it past the censors. That's my guess is, you know, that the government would just not stand for any such scenario. But Another example of the sort of outrage that Asian countries have expressed, uh, and this is a little outside, although you could look at it within the context of the Cold War to a degree, I suppose, because, mm -hmm. and we, this is, we would like to shift our focus to North Korea at some point, but before we do that, even, there's a couple other items I was hoping we could address. Uh, I was yeah, just going to say, within the context of what we're discussing here, James Bond really ruffled a, a lot of feathers in South Korea, as well as perhaps even the North, from what I gather. Maybe you know a little bit more about that. That was a film, gosh, Living a Die Another Day or, you know, some, something with Pierce Brosnan a number of years ago where he visited North Korea. And I think there was a scene there with him at the border. Boy, I, I think over the course of my life, I've probably seen all of them. but. I don't remember that specific one. What was the controversy over it? Because this is the portrayal of the Koreans. Uh, let's see. I'll, I'll do a quick little search here while we're talking okay. and uh, work on coming up with it. Pierce Brosnan, 007. By the way, do you have a favorite Bond? You said you've seen them all. So uh, what's your, uh, which one resonates best with you? I think Goldfinger is my favorite movie. Goldfinger. So, <laughs> yeah. So that would be... Um, Boy, which one was that? Was that Roger Moore? Uh, yes, it 
No, no, oh. Sean Connery. Oh, Sean, uh, okay. Here we go. Die Another Day is a 20th film in a James Bond series to be produced by Eon Productions. And the fourth... What year was that? Just working on getting to that, if I can see here. Uh, just fourth and final film to star Pierce Brosnan as the fictional MI6 agent James Bond. Film follows Bond as he leads a mission to North Korea during which he is betrayed, and after seemingly killing a rogue North Korean colonel, captured and imprisoned. Just once again, looking, scanning through the... Oh, 2002. There we go. Thank you, DuckDuckGo. Okay. So, yeah. And I'd have to dig around a little further as far as the actual... What really it was that ruffled the feathers of uh, a few Koreans. I, once again, believe it was on both sides of the border. So we're just living in the day and age, of course, where you can't do anything that doesn't offend somebody <laughs> for some reason. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to win sometimes. I'm just scrolling down here even further, and it looks like even India has got in on the controversy. Oh, wow. Delhi officials ask X-007 Pierce Brosnan to explain Indian something or another. So there you go. Yeah, damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it is kind of funny if you look at the earlier Bond movies, how a lot of that wouldn't fly, <laughs> you know, in today's society, you know, like the way women are portrayed and, um, you know, sometimes minorities and so forth. So I guess it's kind of baked into the cake with that franchise. So I think it'd be great to do something to stick to that old school kind of feel just simply for the controversial, just to get people talking about it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, just keeping it real. So, well, uh, you know, even Austin Powers, that was made in, um, I just want to say 97 or something like that. And they kind of lampooned that a little bit. So I know it is kind of funny and that's kind of halfway between then and now. So yeah, it would be really out of place now, but yeah, they should go with that. That'd be kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he was a total parody character, wasn't he? Oh yeah. 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 So it was yeah, kind of the whole genre. So. Okay, well, I think we've pretty much, uh, that's a pretty good, we're off to a pretty decent start here. So not really the course I had initially expected, but that's just the way it goes with <laughs> each and every one of these live shows that we do. So one of the notes here, I've got uh, the, the blame, hashtag blame Russia rhetoric. It just never <laughs> stops, does it? So I don't really want to get it. I want to eventually have this addressed over the course of our conversation here. That will, it's another hour or so basically is what we've got to uh, burn up. But uh, yeah, return to the Cold War. Could it be? Just maybe just uh, set that aside for the time being and come back to it in a few minutes. But really the way I guess I like to kind of dive into things here is with respect to Bobby Fischer, who I guess mm -hmm. is facing off against Boris Spatsky. Spassky, hard. I was uh, the Russian Grandmaster, 1972 right. Reykjavik, Iceland, and wow, I mean, talk about you know really pulling on the heartstrings of so many uh, in America and and Russia, as well as perhaps just the general Eastern Bloc region too. I guess you know within some quarters at least, and really getting played up in the media and and, and used for you know propaganda purposes and nationalism reasons and so forth. And then on top of that, on the heels of that, we saw the summer, uh, the 1972 Super Summit between Russia yes. and Canada, the hockey series, which uh, I think kicked off in September. So I think the first, I was just checking this on Wikipedia last night, Spassky and, and Fisher, they faced off. And at that time, I guess Fisher was the underdog. He was a challenger, but that was in July of 72. Is that correct? 
probably about that. I I know the Summit Series was probably in September because it was a preseason thing for the NHL. But yeah, I guess we'll go with that. The summer of 72. But yeah, Bobby Fischer, kind of a uh, reluctant hero for the United States. I, he really had an axe to grind with communists. Definitely no love for them. Is it true that his mother was a communist? Communist Jew, yes, as from what I understand, if one oh, okay. label, label people or things, yeah, that's the deal there. And his father, he had some real major father issues because I believe he was abandoned as a child. So Okay, yeah, I guess I never heard anything about his dad, so yeah, I guess that makes sense. Is his mother confirmed a Jew? Or oh yeah, pretty sure, he, okay. pretty sure about that and communist. Okay, because I know he he um, had a lot to say about the Jews that kind of oh, ostracized well, him. Like, like eventually, but he didn't really he didn't really hear much about that back in the early seventies. I don't think, but it later came out that he really yeah, some major issues with Israel and you know Jew this and Jew that a little over the top to say the least. But you know that aside, uh, you know he was a genius chess player, obviously, and yeah, absolutely just, uh, he struggled with some personal issues. It seems yeah. So, I mean, you kind of wonder if some of, um, you know, like I said, like he had it out for the Soviet Union and, and the Jews, if it was just kind of um, more personal issues, kind of, I guess, projecting due to his mother or whatnot or father or lack thereof. So, I don't know. It's kind of maybe it's kind of hard to paint him as an ideologue for anything, really. He was used as a pawn. Clearly, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, American yeah. political establishment. I think he understood that, but he also maybe felt that he did have a role to play in that capacity. So reluctant, as you say, but at the same time, you know, what can you do when it's that seems to be your calling in life, your destiny for why you're put on this earth, you know, to do these sort of things. So, but is there anything right. more that as far as his and, and, and how many matches, seven occasions they faced off? Was it seven or ten? I'm not sure. Not exactly sure. Yeah, it was more than a few. And I think that was an issue that when it it came to Bobby Fischer defending his title, where they disagreed on how many matches they would play, I want to say that was why he basically forfeited his title during the rematch. Jeez, it could have been. You know, I wish I was going to, well, I was hoping you would be able to kind of really kind of be able to break it down for us in a Mm kind of concise manner. But uh, he was complaining about the lighting. And the sound and the clicking of the cameras, even. <laughs> it was like <laughs> yeah. all kinds of things. And you could see that was like the start in some ways of his paranoid uh, tendencies with certain mystical energies being sent mm-hmm. his way and the Russians pulling all sorts of underhanded, the, the t- secret kind of uh, cutting edge technologies to get into his head and just totally mess with the man. So uh, have you heard these stories or do you know about that where he was making these accusations? <laughs> Very little. Um, I've heard about the accusations, but I don't necessarily know if they're really founded on anything. I don't really know any more than that. A lot really along the lines of what you hear about these days with respect to so-called targeted individuals. <laughs> yeah. um, things like use of the harp. Well, I'm not sure about harp so much as Gwen Towers or cell phone technology. There are patents for these these technologies, too. So uh, whether they were that developed at that point or not, who really knows? I'm not too clear and couldn't say. If I was more of an insider and, in, say, for example, the CIA or something right. along those lines, I might be able to share a little more information. Uh, there are people out there. <laughs> or that maybe talk not, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how far we'd be able to go into it. But I'm not sure what, what more can you say. I know Henry Kissinger was kind of, he figured into the scene throughout the, the 70s and, and Cold War. 
But uh, just as far as the matches themselves and the way that Fisher was used as, as a pawn, once again, is there just anything more you can say to this? Um, no, just kind of a reluctant hero. That was a kind of a rough time for the United States, really. The Vietnam War was going on at the time, very decisive, you know, and everything going on at home, uh, the race riots, um, you know, back in like 68. And, you know, those tensions kind of continue through then. And then I guess we were about to hit the oil embargo, too. So maybe this is a period where the United States is looking for pretty much anything to grab onto. Also, the years through the 60s weren't really that bad for the Soviet Union either. We kind of hit a point of uh, detente where things were pretty cordial, I guess, between the two powers and kind of stable. So I don't know. Maybe we saw ourselves slipping a little bit and just wanted to hold on to anything we could. And, well, a chess prodigy turned out to be our guy for that those series of matches. I was just going to say that over the course of his career, what ended up happening was he was on the run and a hunted man, the Bush administration, I guess, was out to get him. And, uh, you know, he found his way, managed to, for some time, well, had been detained by Japanese officials in a mm-hmm. prison which he claimed suffered from nuclear contamination. It was a radioactive environment. I'm not sure if it was because of, it was the location, I think, is what maybe had something to do with it, and that it was situated right close to a, a nuclear reactor or something along those lines. So he was held there for some time in Japan, and that's where I guess he got sick. And some sort of, uh, I'm not sure what it was exactly, but ended up managing to be taken in by Iceland, thank God, yes. because of his godlike status. They really <laughs> you know, held him in yeah. quite high regard, of course, and they remembered, because I guess it kind of boosted the profile of Iceland helped to put them on the map and uh i mean what other major international events have occurred that where iceland has really figured into things as far as you know the 20th century boy not not really they've been pretty quiet since the sagas basically in bjork um that's about it doing pretty good Um, as far as pirate party politics are concerned uh, interestingly yeah that's uh, true yeah jailing bankers actually i went i went to iceland about 10 years ago and man that's a beautiful country Oh, yeah. Beautiful people, beautiful uh, yes. the landscape and scenery, majestic, and uh, absolutely, sure. Yeah, it's yeah, erratic weather. You know, you have monsoon-style rainstorms for half an hour, then it's you'll see the sun for 10 minutes, and it'll be cloudy and windy, and boy, it's beautiful. And I'd, interesting people. I'd love to live there, if, as I'm sure a lot of people would, but maybe it is a place of uh, retirement perhaps who knows we'll just have yeah, to see really so. expensive there oh so. really jeez yeah because if you think about it um they have a first world standard of life and it's such a small market kind of out on its own so it costs a lot to ship things there and they don't produce a lot domestically they do uh like aluminum there because they have a lot of hydroelectric power fish and tourism that's about it really um, and lamb, but you know they don't really grow a whole lot or make a whole lot there on the island, so they pay a premium for everything. Yeah, you'd imagine, absolutely. Um, so I'm not sure if there's anything more. We could come back to this uh, a little later too down the road here, but if there's not anything more you'd like to add to that. We could uh, kind of shift the focus a little bit now sure. to yeah, let's move what, on. Yeah, what occurred just a month or two after. Fisher and Spassky facing off in Iceland. Of course, 
Fisher does prove himself to be the the bigger man. He uh, comes out the victor, and uh, mm-hmm. that really went a long way, I guess, in boosting morale throughout uh, the states. I'm not sure what it did to Russia exactly. A bit of a letdown, I guess. Yeah, I mean, probably a bit of a letdown because chess was their thing. But also at the same time, too, you know, kind of almost like what we're talking about with China, some things would hit the Soviet media but be downplayed. Like, for instance, the miracle on ice in 1980. When that hit the Soviet media, it was kind of put on page two news, I guess. Like, they didn't exactly say it didn't happen, but kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, this happened, move on. So I assume that's probably what they did with that. But I don't know, maybe people in the Soviet Union were really interested in the game so much that they did want to hear this story. So I guess I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something definitely worth looking into. Fascinating, though, just the way that people are used as pawns, sporting events, you know. Yeah. And, uh, what did Hitler famously say about professional sports? I think it was within the context of the Olympics, in particular, 1936. Berlin, something along the lines of how it's warfare without the blood kind of deal. <laughs> that sort of thing. So that was more or less his yes. take. Okay, well then the this, this Super Summit, as it was known, seven games, I believe. Of, eight. There's a, eight, a couple in yep. mm-hmm. Canada, a couple in Russia. How did it all yep. play out? They did the first four in Canada. I believe it was Montreal, Winnipeg, Toronto, and Vancouver. So they toured the country, basically. And then the next four were in Moscow. And it started off, they put this together as, I don't know, just kind of to feel each other out, I guess. Um, The Soviet hockey program was still relatively young, but they were cleaning house in international hockey tournaments. And part of the reason why this happens is because they banned professional athletes from uh, participating in this. Well, no one in the Soviet Union is technically a professional athlete. What they have is the army would have a team, trade unions would have teams and so forth. But these guys would be basically professional players, but technically like in the army or with this trade union or whatnot. So most of the players actually came from the Moscow SKR, I think it is. So, you know, they're commissioned army officers, but all they do is play hockey. And now for the Canadians, the Americans, the Swedes and so forth. These players are going to have to be not perfect, like not NHL players, but college players. So you get younger guys with less experience, um, you know, maybe lower talent levels going up against guys that are basically NHL caliber. But still, the Canadians figured hockey is their sport and they were going to clean house with the Soviets. They figured there's no way that they could hold up against these NHL greats. Well, the first game that happened, I believe, was in Montreal. And if I remember right, it was like 7-3, to three, the Soviets. The Canadians just didn't know what hit them. And that kind of sent them reeling um, because, like I said, a lot of the uh, sports media at the time would write that, you know, the, maybe the most optimistic estimates would be that the Soviets maybe win one game out of the series. But most would say, like, all eight would be Canada and pretty decisively. But the whole series actually ended up being very, very close. I think in Canada, it ended up being the Canadians won one, and then there was a tie and two Soviet wins. And it was so bad, I guess, technically, just looking at it as purely hockey games, they were pretty close, pretty evenly matched. But the Canadian fans were very let down by it. 
And in fact, their last game, the Canadian team actually got booed by the Canadian fans leaving the ice. And I don't know, they kind of um, put their big boy britches on, I guess, when they got to Moscow. And I think the Canadians won three of the games out of the four. Yeah, I believe that was it. And the last game, now the series would have been tied 3-3 with the one tie. And the last game was pretty dramatic. There was a goal that was waved off, a Canadian goal that was waved off. And the Canadians ended up getting a goal, I believe it was Phil Esposito, uh, with like 30 seconds left and won the game. Paul Henderson um, was the player, actually. Oh, I, okay, I yeah. I think oh. Esposito was, he was there, obviously. He was and, there, uh, yeah. <laughs> sure, Bobby Clark. What if uh, Bobby Orr, he was having knee issues as always, wasn't he? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, he was technically on the roster, but not there, I guess. I'm just actually looking at the, the Wikipedia article that they've okay. got here put together. And you're right, like, my God, it was just, you talk about historic. It could have gone either way, I guess, really, but kind of scrappy. First game, uh, 7-3 Russia. Game mm-hmm. two, 4-1 uh, Canada. Game three. It was a tie. I, I guess they don't do overtime or shootouts, apparently. I figure they would for an exhibition game like that, but maybe that was in the whatever they agreed to going into it. That's right, um, sure. Game four, five, three, uh, Russia. Then they went to the Soviet Union, as you said. Game five, Russia took the first one there, too, five, four. And then from that point, game six, seven, and eight. Game six, Canada, three, two over Russia. Game seven, they took the Reds, four, three. Edged them out by a single goal. Yeah. <laughs> game eight, six, five. But Paul Henderson, he never scored hardly any goals in his entire life. I think in that series, he got at least, it was like three real dramatic. He chalked up three really major times where he managed to put it in the net. One of those guys that's there when you need them. <laughs> yeah. Continue, if you will, and I'll keep uh, yeah. just perusing here. Go ahead. There's a little bit of, well, Quite a bit of style difference between Soviet and European style hockey, really, versus that of what we play in North America. Um, one of the big differences is the Olympic-sized ice is bigger. Off the top of my head, I forgot how much bigger it is, but it's a little wider. And it basically means that the European players are typically going to be better skaters, better playmakers. Um, they have more room to work with. And due to the smaller ice, North American players tend to be more aggressive. And this is something when, I guess, these two worlds collide. The Soviets and Europeans in general aren't typically used to the the very rough physical play that we have. So, you know, you get them in the corner and, um, you know, a hard check that would be kind of run in the mill in the United States or Canada or whatnot. um, It's going to affect them a little bit more. But then again, the Soviets were just better playmakers due to the larger ice. And I think that had a little bit to do with some of the um, refereeing problems that North America had, where, uh, yeah, some of it was probably funny business as far as, you know, kind of rigging it in the favor of the Soviets. But some of it, too, was probably what may be a little bit more acceptable in North America, not being acceptable with the European and Soviet standards as far as physical play goes. Absolutely. That was a major uh, factor indeed. And it really kind of, I think, threw the Russians off their game because they weren't used to it. They were stunned by the hard-hitting, the finesse, the aggression, and in-your-face kind of style of these uh, gritty 
Canucks. What was there? Some business of uh, something they were go- they were messing around with the offsides or the blue line. They were doing something. I don't know. It was something some a defensive? No, I think of what it was is every time laying them out at the blue line or something is really aggressive. There was one of the games the Russians wouldn't even come out to play, from what I recall. Is that correct? I know there were a few times where things kind of broke down between they, the they teams. They left the ice. Um, they left the ice. Yeah, and um, they kind of did some back and forth. I think there was something to do where the Canadian team was supposed to present them um, some kind of token gift, I guess, from Canada, and the Russians refused to take it. So there was a lot of um, bad blood, really, between these teams. Um, Trudeau appeared on you know, the ice in Vancouver. Pierre Elliott. Oh, I'm not sure if you know about that or not, but kind no, of. Oh, what do you do? There. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. He was just there glad handing and oh. making an appearance as prime minister, head of state, queens aside, queen of England aside, I suppose. Yeah. But whatever that's worth. But how about that? Just major tensions. I was only a little kid at the time, like barely out of my mm-hmm. crib. And I'm not sure where I even watched that game, but I'm pretty positive that my dad would have had the television on. So he probably would have sat me right there in the room with him. And, you know, so I absorbed it as it occurred, but just too young to uh, remember too much. Although reruns have been televised and there's been documentaries done uh, dealing with the whole ordeal and everything. So, uh, yeah, uh, I've never mm-hmm. um, watched them, but I kind of wonder if they're on YouTube. I kind of assume that the games would be on YouTube by now. So I'm going to have to look into that. Sure. Yeah. You know, you say you've put one book together. I'm not sure if there's been any others. But if you were to approach things from the standpoint, as you'd like to do via your podcast, through the lens of pop culture, that would be quite something with respect to the what we've talked about so far, the Fisher-Spassky head-to-head in Iceland. Yeah. And, of course, this uh, Super Summit. 72 between Russia and Canada. Tretiak, what a great goaltender. Mm-hmm. And yes, Ken Dryden, absolutely. too, yeah. huh? Ken Dryden? Yeah. I met Ken Dryden, and he kind of uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> he kind of disappointed me, actually. <laughs> this is while I was going to university in Victoria, and he was at a book signing, and I went there to buy a book for my brother, who's, you know, at that time was heavily involved and really hands-on active in the junior hockey um, farm team system and everything now. You know, he's at the point now where he's based out of Calgary and kind of a bit of an insider as far as things go from what I can tell as far as, you know, with respect to hockey and so forth. But anyways, at the time, Ken Dryden, yeah, asked him if he would sign the book for my brother and just if he could provide like a little bit of a anecdote or just a clever little witticism or some little special Mm -hmm. thing that he could add to it. And he looked at me, he's like, thought for a moment. It's like, I don't think so. <laughs> that kind of deal. It's like, ah, nothing really coming to mind. So moving along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, you never know about some of these people. Some of them are very personal. Some of them, not so much, yeah. I guess, you know, you know, but well, the way I approach it always is the art versus the artist. So I can respect right. anyone, an artist or a performer, you know, any kind, whether it's sports or what have you, I can appreciate what they do on the field or in the stadium or on stage, but also look at them and see them for what they are outside of that arena 
and and realm really is they're kind of you know jerks sometimes like bobby fisher maybe you know no oh, um, yeah he probably wasn't very pleasant <laughs> no but but also i yeah, i got a lot of compassion for the guy just because of his mm-hmm. you know his anger and frustration and uh you know but maybe he had a point maybe he had a reason there's i think a lot of it probably stems back to his daddy issues uh being abandoned at such a young age of course yeah. and then a number of other factors figuring into the picture as well too so but yeah the super summit and uh you know i'm not sure if there's anything more you'd like to say to things there it's great canada came out victorious i think some of the old guys they they still tour around even to this day so but here's the thing i'm not sure how Mm -hmm. old you are exactly 40 maybe 36 okay 36 so yeah you weren't even born yet i mean so how did you first find out about these things like the super summit and fisher and spassky in iceland and uh I guess they're major events. So, uh, well, as far as the Super Summit, when I was a kid, when I was really young, I was really into hockey, which um, I guess is probably a, a little unusual for Iowa at the time. It, you know, definitely wasn't as popular as it is in, say, like you know, Minnesota, Michigan, and so forth. And hockey definitely wasn't as popular um, amongst you know my peers, I guess, as like baseball, basketball, football, and so forth. But I was really big into hockey, like elementary school age. And um, I guess I've always just had kind of an analytical mind. So I would absorb pretty much anything I could about it. You know, if I got a hold of a book or magazine article about things, I would read it and kind of commit a lot of things to memory. I guess some things just kind of stick with me. And, you know, I guess that kind of applies to other things too. You know, I'll read something and kind of make connections to other things with it, I guess, and um, kind of keep it with me and bring it up when I need it, I guess. Like, I don't follow NHL hockey or anything right now, but I, I do actually play hockey, like in an adult league. And um, I'm a captain of a team. My team is called the Wolverines, of course. So there's kind of one tie-in right there. But um, it, to me, it's just kind of more of a recreational thing than, um, you know, actually really following the sport of hockey, you know. Yeah, up in your mid-30s, your career has peaked. Most players, their careers have, have <laughs> hit the heights of about as far as they're going to go there. So, you know, it's interesting. Just last night, I had a dream about Wayne Gretzky. Can you believe it? Oh, really? Yeah. It's <laughs> weird, man. It's like, oh, geez, I, my subconscious, I guess, telling me we're going to be talking a little bit of hockey. So I was I was really big into hockey myself as a kid and just crazy, of course, about it all. And uh, I was, you know, the captain of my team back when I was a 12 years old. I don't want to get too sidetracked with the whole thing, but I played junior up to the time I was about, well, 20, 21. And I do occasionally dream about hockey, being on the ice and skating around. I haven't done it in years. And I haven't watched a hockey game in quite a long time, not even with the recent Olympics to even bother to tune in. But if I had the chance, I suppose, to uh, being here based out of Korea, which I think you're aware of that, I think I might have drawn that to your Mm -hmm. attention, that it's kind of tough taekwondo is the national sport here of course and i'm not based out of seoul i think they got the expats got a few like little street hockey games and even like leagues of sorts that they've managed to cobble together there up in the metropolis there but down where i am in the sticks here it's like a different story and i've got other things to do of course but what a great game and uh it can be quite barbaric at times too and, and i think that's one of the things that the russians they hadn't really, uh, that was kind of <laughs> really thrown in their face as a big wake-up call is just how savage uh, things could really be on the ice. Elbows flying into your face and sticks and pucks. Yes. 
blood everywhere on the ice and the whole thing. (laughs) But, uh, you know, moving along now, we've only got a little more than half an hour here, really, with the main feature end of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you're going to be able to stick around for the after show. As I explained through our private messaging, we have a post show that we do it's for the patreon supporters we put together an hour long post feature event it's premium content for the patreon subscribers called the rogues gallery after show all right we'll wind things up and then maybe just talk about things okay. in brief and see where things stand after we draw this portion of today's conversation to a close but i'd like to just kind of shift the focus speaking of korea to the korean war going so far back in fact to the meeting at i believe it was yalta between Stalin, mm-hmm. Churchill, and I'm not sure if Roosevelt was dead by that time or not, but there's two major conferences that did take place, one with Truman, or I'm sorry, one with Roosevelt, and one mm-hmm. where Truman had replaced him. To set the yes. audience and our listeners straight on how just things played out during that era with Yalta and those uh, other high-level uh, Yeah, there, there was three of them. The first one was in Tehran, and that one was in early 1944, I want to say off the top of my head. That was Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt. And that one was mainly about the conduct of the war. And the big takeaway from that one was that it was agreed upon that the United States and Great Britain would open up that second front. Now, by the time they had the Yalta Conference, this was in, I want to say, it might have been 1940, early 1945. And at this point, Germany's goose was cooked. They knew that you know, they were going to win the war. So their discussions were about the post-war world. And that's the one where I believe that they said that they would end up splitting Korea or, yeah, the Soviets, they would get involved in the Pacific theater when they were ready, basically. You know, there were certain possessions, I guess, like around Japan. They kind of promised to the Soviets at that point. And then the Potsdam Conference, that was immediately following the war. That was in August. And, um, you know, Germany fell in April. So that's the one where it was Truman and not Roosevelt. They hammered out just some of the, the details about the partitioning of Germany, you know, dividing Berlin into sectors and uh, kind of how they were going to govern Europe, I guess, as as the two or, I guess, three powers. Ryan, just hang on a second. Mm-hmm. I'd like to yeah. come back to what we're talking about here because this is really quite something. So let me just, just for the record, it's so we're looking at Tehran. Yalta, and then the third one, Potsdam. That's right. I remember from my high school history classes, those do resonate (laughs) and ring a bell. But we should just give a quick shout out here to the folks that we have who have dropped by and come on board, join us here via the live streaming YouTube chat. Both Pirate Joe's Eminon as well as Joe Triple Three. Joe Eminon, based out of Long Island, New York. As regular listeners will know, and Joe Triple Three, meanwhile, another fellow uh, expat living here in Korea. And finally, of course, who else do we got there signed in? Emily Anderson from out of uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which you is a place I'd imagine you have uh, hopefully heard about at least. Yep, I've, time or two. I've heard of it. I've never been there. That's way down south in Missouri. I think right. it's. If you look at a picture of the state, there's like a little boot heel, and I think it's like pretty much right on that boot heel. Let's see. We haven't talked to him in a while, so I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that he's managed to make his way up there into the crow's nest without too many complications. 
Dustin, do we still got you up there in the crow's nest, or how far did he manage to actually make it up there? Are you there, Fox? He might have fallen asleep, you know. Well, we'll give him a few more seconds here. Fox, good God, you know these novices, I tell you, uh, Powder <laughs> Monkey, from uh, yep. so, risen from the rank of Powder Monkey up to the uh, crow's nest, and my God... Well, we better send somebody up there to see. Hopefully, he hasn't fallen overboard. <laughs> Not overboard. <laughs> oh, this is uh, tragic. So, how sad. Friggin' in the rigging. <laughs> yeah, another pirate funeral perhaps coming up here quite shortly. Either that, or he's just simply not much of a history buff, and he's completely decided to check out. So, so much for the <laughs> co-hosting gig. Anyways, moving along. Yeah, so big shout-out and thanks to everyone who has joined us. Be sure, if you've got any questions or comments, things that you'd like to have Ryan field or address, let us know there in the live streaming chat, and we can draw these things to his attention. Back, though, to the conversation at hand. Tehran, Yalta, and Potsdam, let me just say, are you aware of the assassination plot that was in place? They were trying to actually somebody take out FDR in Tehran. Do you know about that? I've heard a little bit about that, but I conspiracy, don't know. Conspiracy, lot... conspiracy yeah. theories, ooh, <laughs> politics. Eh? Mm. Yeah, it's yes. kind of funny. That's almost a futile effort because he'd be gone in a few months anyway. But There's a lot of people that say they got him. They did manage to get him eventually. You know yeah. what I mean? The circumstances surrounding his death, I'm not sure if you know about that. Probably a little more than I do, but just if you could, Tehran. I, what, actually, what? I, I don't. There you go. A little bit of homework there for you then, because yeah. it was quite mysterious the way that he uh, caught the westbound, as one of my professorial friends likes to put it. So, um, yeah, I'll look into that. Yeah. So, but as far as the Tehran assassination plot, what do you know? Um, I just remember coming across something where they were going to try to kill him, I guess, there. But that's really all I know about that. Who was behind it, though? That's the question, I guess. Uh, was it the Soviets? I have no idea, but it it had to do with his uh, travel or transportation route through the city, I believe, of Tehran, and that I think somebody was plotting, yeah, to take him out on the way to meet the other heads of state. So hmm. that's interesting because I know Stalin was very particular about his travel to there. I believe he refused to fly, if I remember right. So he took a train basically from moscow to tehran which that's a pretty long ride <laughs> i guess so Jeez, that would be quite something now another uh something a point of interest which i think is really it'd be great if you could uh maybe work to further flesh this one out but at yalta yeah. you kind of did you hit on it and this is something that people have talked about how the korean war was really designed and kind of laid out at yalta you know with the division of the two koreas yeah, the Japanese kind of really upset the apple cart with the war. What I mean by that is they kicked out a lot of colonial powers uh, throughout Asia. But in the case of Korea, they were the colonial powers. And some of the, the most ardent resistance to the colonial powers and the Japanese were the communists. They were typically kind of suppressed before the war, but Picked up a lot of, I guess, credit with the people and I guess a lot of popularity and steam based on their their resistance and not being seen as collaborators where other people were. And when there was this big power vacuum, when the Japanese left and the imperial powers were weak all throughout Asia, 
the communists in a lot of places started to fill the void. And that's what caused a lot of the problems, you know, like Indonesia, French Indochina, and in a way, Korea, too, because the communists in Korea, they existed. um, They became more viable um, after the uh, Japanese left. And that's who the Soviets installed and their half of the Korea. Now, you probably know more about this than I do, but I've heard that the division of Korea from north to south doesn't make a whole lot of sense. People in Korea never really had a um, sense of I'm a northern Korean or I'm a southern Korean. Like, if anything, it would be more east to west. Divide and conquer. Absolutely. There There are regional identities that still exist on the peninsula in the south in particular, although I think that's kind of softening to a certain extent, although not when it comes to political campaigns and elections and and voting tendencies, because Mm -hmm. uh, with the west coast of the peninsula, Japanese influence never really seems to have left or gone away. Pak Chung-hee, the dictator who reigned supreme and was finally, I believe, assassinated by one of his in air quotes now, bodyguards. Funny how that happens <laughs> yeah. so often. i got to keep an yeah, eye on those bodyguards. doesn't always repeat, but it rhymes. <laughs> well, and then there was like Nomui Hun, who the only witness to his either jumping or some course believe pushed mm-hmm. off of the this cliff from where he plummeted to his death. The only witness to that event was his bodyguard. <laughs> and his, <laughs> his story changed about three or four different times, too, which is very sketchy, of course why that would uh, be the case. Details aside, though, leaving that aside, it is something to look into, though, for sure. Maybe we can talk about it in the after show. But, uh, yeah, uh, that Pak Chung-hee, he was uh, schooled in Japan, and uh, so, as well as Im Young Park, mm-hmm. I guess, who a lot of, there's a lot of speculation, he was part Japanese. So there was, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, mating, uh, you know, to put it one way, I guess. Right, yeah. <laughs> during the time of occupation, uh, not necessarily marriages in a formal sense, but just interbreeding. And this has been the case for thousands of years, hasn't it? You know, really. Yeah. It's not like it's the first time we've ever seen that happen. But the impact and importance, the significance of the Silk Roads as well, too, just fascinating. If ever you get a chance to look into that, it's quite amazing, really. It's so vast and large and hugely significant, of course, as far as the the historical context of things is concerned. So, yeah, Japan, with the industrial investment and development there on the, I'm sorry, did I say West Coast? East Coast. Yes, you did. Um, yeah, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. Yeah, There we go. Well, yeah, if I say anything, because sometimes things slip out of my mouth where it's like, what is he talking about? You know, it's like <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, they're they're going about it the long <laughs> route, sort of circling around, flanking them from the back. But uh, <laughs> and here's one of the things I really wanted to talk about, and we can circle back to any of these issues that we've already covered, of course, and kind of just tie things in a little more at any point as you so wish. With the not well, quite half hour that we have left, the Korean War, and no wonder the North Koreans bear such hostility to this day, towards the American Yankee imperialist. <laughs> Do you know how heavily they were hit by these aerial bombardments during the Korean War up in the north? I mean, I don't have figures or stats, but I know it was very bad. I know that it was, it was a really hard war for the people of North Korea. It's said they had to endure the tonnage and amount of uh, mm-hmm. bombs that were dropped on the north over the course of whatever, I guess it's just a couple short years, of course, 
this took place with the Americans and, well, UN forces and their bombing runs, it actually outstripped and was greater than the total amount dropped over the course of World War II out in the entire South Pacific theater. That's, you know, through the Philippines and Japan and all that. It was a huge, man. It was a it was incredible, you know. And in fact, Truman even toyed with the idea of, of nuking them, just flat out, you know, yeah. getting those nukes fired up there. So, uh, yeah, that was sure. a, Have you heard about that? A game changer. What are your thoughts? I, on I've that? heard, I've heard that the idea was brought out, and Truman certainly had people whispering in his ear to use the nuclear option. But fortunately, they held off on that, just um, because the escalation that could have easily happened with that. The Russians, they had the atomic bomb at that point. So, you know, it could turn into something where it, it would have gotten out of hand. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, I guess. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the world had already witnessed the impact of those two events, of mm-hmm. course. How many other countries have actually used nuclear weapons other than the U.S. of A., who constantly, it seems, yeah. got Washington Washington going around with the neocons now, I guess, uh, even in the Trump administration with Bolton, that yeah. recent uh, appointment. And it's, is it hashtag drain the swamp, you know, DTS, more like <laughs> hashtag fill the swamp, FTS. Yeah. So it's like, haven't we yeah, already seen this? You know, so. Kind of what it's looking like. I voted for Trump. I was hopeful. I think his foreign policy has been pretty agreeable to this point. But um, yeah, Bolton, that's a guy I don't want to see. I'd rather him go off to the private sector. Well, he's stepping out now, and that's the whole thing. I commented on this recently with uh, just a Facebook thread that popped up, how uh, this revolving door policy from the private, public, political game that these people play at the highest levels, you know, and they're totally just cashing in. It's like one hand feeding the other is what it seems. Right, yeah. It's a major industry, systemic, rampant fascism, frankly. And when I say fascism, I just mean Mussolini. He would be someone who would have known this, of course. Corporatism, simply. That's that's all it mm-hmm. is. So, uh, God damn, I wish I was taking more notes. There's, I have so many different ideas here that I just want to kind of maybe pepper you with, almost in like a hockey kind of style where you got these pucks <laughs> coming. It's like, oh, you're the goaltender having to block. and to, Yeah, uh, I play defense, so I watch him whiz by. <laughs> I guess, yeah, there's a lot of analogies to be made, though, as with any sport football baseball you name it so but let's see the focus once again i haven't really been looking at my notes here i'll I'll bring those up here and see what else we got here's one for you this is something that kind of popped up that i thought would be quite interesting the term well what do you think where do you stand on historical revisionism these things need to be revisited exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh god no historical revisionism it's case closed we got it settled don't go here again yeah. What? Hang on. What? Just recently, I read a book about Joe McCarthy, and there were a lot of parallels, I guess, that I made in my head between the way they reacted to him and the way people are reacting to Donald Trump right now. You know, I look at some of the things they say about Donald Trump, and, you know, sometimes they take what he says and, you know, they blow it out of proportion, or you get somebody else's perspective on what happened or what he said, and it sounds a million times worse than it actually was. And it just kind of had me thinking about, well, you know, maybe some of the things McCarthy did but were taken out of context or, I, I, you know, I don't know, misinterpreted or deliberately twisted or whatever. You know, that's just one example. But 
you know, they say sometimes the victors write history. And um, yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, there's always several different perspectives to any event. And um, it's going to depend on whose perspective you hear. So I think, you know, if you do have access to other perspectives on historical events, yeah, by all means, uh, look at them with an open mind. History is a set of lies agreed upon. Napoleon <laughs> yeah. apart. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and, and I totally, you know, concur with uh, this business, as you say. Uh, history is written by the the winners of wars. In fact, Churchill talked about how history would regard him favorably, is what he was said to have so famously stated, and why history would look upon him in a positive sense is because he said he would be writing it. <laughs> he really said oh, that. Yeah, apparently. that's a good cause, point. Cause, yeah, because I'll be writing it. <laughs> Let's just kind of just shift the focus now uh, over to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Germany. And in particular, yes. you know, one of the things I want to ask you about, what I think is really kind of interesting, is General Patton, Renegade Patton, <laughs> not Maverick, yeah. as well as the bombing of places such as Dresden. You've talked about that a little bit. I've heard you in one of your podcasts. Mm -hmm. I did manage to check out some of your shows. And by the way, anybody right. that does get a chance, be sure. I know we... we uh, Refer to it as the Cold War podcast in the introduction. It's a Cold War cast is a show that Ryan's got put together here. And I think you've managed to archive about 25 shows or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I believe iTunes. that's what's on there. Yeah. Wow. And I then mean, if, you, if you go to the webpage, um, you can get pretty much all the shows from there, too. That's coldwarcast.com, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. I'm doing this more or less chronologically. The first episode that I did, well, I did kind of one just introduction episode that's, you know, kind of a throwaway, I guess. But the first real episode that I did was actually my analysis of the Communist Manifesto. From there, I did three different books that are yeah, fiction books. I did uh, The Iron Heel by Jack London, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, and Looking Backwards by Edward Bellamy. And use those to explain different facets of socialism. And then kind of just worked my way up through the the roots of the cold war into the cold war so some of those early shows i think it took me a little while to get my feet underneath it you know a lot of uhs and ums and um so forth but i don't know i guess the material is not too bad so yeah it's it's worth um going back you know there's probably some topics that might interest people you know i did some eisenstein films you know that's the guy that did battleship potemkin and strike and so forth talked about those and um so, yeah, there's some interesting stuff back there. You might have to do some throwback episodes, I guess, coming up. I guess I'm not sure exactly how many episodes I have out right now, but I've been doing this for about two years. And um, I don't know, we might be pushing 50 episodes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there's that many available on iTunes for whatever reason. I might be off, though, with my numbers as well. But I thought I'd only downloaded about 25 or so, but that's neither really here nor there at this stage. So. You know, definitely, once again, encourage everyone to check out Ryan's archives. iTunes was the best way that it worked for me. It was really just downloading real smooth, kind of streamlined process and way of doing things. So, although I guess you can get them via your website as well, too. You're right about the delivery, though. It takes, for myself, not public speaker, never done any radio or podcasting or anything of the like, never given a formal speech uh, it takes a lot of practice. There's no doubt about it as far as the smooth delivery and being able to actually put a sentence together, just starters, and then 
continue with the flow of conversation to try and make some sense of where it is that you're leading things and, and trying to uh, take the discussion. So it's a lot of skill, I would say, and a lot of effort, but it's a lot of fun, too. As, as It is, yeah. You know, I don't think you really do the live thing, but we that's no. a really great kind of extra little feature that we get a kick out of. We've got folks that do tune in on a regular basis. Most people, of course, generally just go for the downloads once you've archived mm -hmm. things. That's how it works generally throughout the podcasting community. One of the things that you mentioned, though, with the protocols, the learned elders of Zion, I do want to talk about Hitler, though, and his supposed death in the bunker before we wrap things up here. But I've heard it talked about and mentioned how, in fact, the protocols, the learned elders of Zion, in many ways, the Communist Manifesto is like a carbon copy plagiarized um, uh, account is what some people have talked about, or at least there's a lot of similarities that can be found between the two. Did, did you say that the Communist Manifesto is a carbon copy of the um, Protocols of Elders of Zion? What I've heard is that there's a lot of parallels yeah. between the two, as if Marx and Engels kind of knew about the former and just kind of uh, added their own take to things, but really just you could see a lot okay. of inspiration there. I mean, have you heard about this? or I, I think the Protocols of Learned Elders of Zion, uh, I think that came out after the Communist Manifesto, if I remember right. I want to say that's from the late 19th century, and the Communist Manifesto was from the 1860s. I yeah. guess they're, they're kind of in the same period. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. The Communist Manifesto came first. You're right. So maybe the Protocols that actually copied Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto. So Yeah, there's... Um, it's been a while since I've read that. There's probably going to be some parallels to that. One thing that I think is interesting about that book, um, you know, people always say it's a forgery. And it's not necessarily a forgery. It's almost like a dystopian fiction novel. The guy didn't write it necessarily to be misleading, like it was um, a real document or anything like that. Um, as I understand it, it was meant to be just kind of like a, a scary work of writing that maybe had some basis in reality, you know, enough to um, make people kind of panic a little bit about well, it. Well, you know, let's just assume for the sake of argument that it is a forgery. <laughs> <laughs> that being the case, uh, it's still interesting to look at where we are presently with the world that we find ourselves living in, how it's almost as if each of these uh, doctrines and protocols is being followed to a T as far as subversion of yeah. society and education and indoctrination and polluting the minds of the youth and the moral values going like waging war on that branch or of society and the human psyche. You know, is there anything, you know, if you can kind of pick up on what I'm getting at there? And yeah, uh, yeah, thoughts. absolutely. There, there are parallels. If you look at a book like that, and, and I guess if you have a certain mindset too, um, you'd be able to look at it and say like, you know, yeah, there's this, subversion of culture that is meant to um, be degenerate, I guess, and that, you know, there would be these people behind it or whatnot. So yeah, there's definitely the parallels to that. It does seem very modern, I guess, if you look at it from that perspective, even though it was written, like I said, at the uh, end of the uh, 19th century. But what I meant by it um, being a, when they say it's a forgery, it would almost be like saying any fiction book is a forgery since it didn't happen. I, I, I don't know why they say it's a forgery and not just say it's fiction. Maybe that just kind of um, 
deflects a little bit from some of the charges actually in the book. But that's one that, uh, I don't know, maybe I don't have to thumb through that one again. I think I've got it downloaded on a Kindle or something like that. I'm going to have to look through that book again. Dystopian, great word, especially yeah. in the context, of course. of You know, I think if, if you look at it from that perspective, um, yeah, maybe it is one of the great dystopian novels. Definitely something everyone should certainly take the time out to take a look at. There's a documentary that we can maybe add to the show notes as well, where in the following in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and all, you know, the great, the aftermath, there was a conversation, discussion that, yeah, this is, you know, that the Jews were behind it. And uh, (laughs) a Jewish fellow actually put a documentary together dealing with the protocols in the context of the attacks and so forth. So don't want to get too sidetracked with all this, but my own personal thoughts is that, frankly, I do see, I mean, you look at the, if you just study it, that there seems to be some involvement from the part of Mossad, most definitely. And isn't it funny how Trump, 28 pages, 28 pages, <laughs> during the course of the election <laughs> campaign when he gets elected, it's like the next thing you see him doing is uh, visiting the the Saudi royals being honored with some and decorated with uh, all their their finest garb and attire and just yucking it up over there in the Middle East. Over 28 pages <laughs> yeah. for some reason. And that's largely who it, uh, you know, the 28 pages, I guess, it's, yeah. kind of called out. So don't worry. Yeah, I remember yeah, Go ahead. Um, like shortly after 9-11 getting one of those chain emails that stated that the Israeli State Department or something like that basically contacted all the Jewish employees of the um, – Medical messaging yeah. service, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily true or not, but I remember that circulating, um, kind of, I guess, in like alternative news circles, I guess, uh, back then in the early days of uh, the internet as we know it today, I guess. People so. have to do a run at Odago, a keyword Odago, September 11th keyword search via DuckDuckGo mm-hmm. and see what results come up and uh, where it leads them in their own way of kind of reasoning things through, I suppose. You know, one of the things that we have not done, uh, we're kind of racing against the clock here too, a real formal kind of definition, it's just, you know, perfect timing, of course, save this for the very end. We have not really laid out what it, the Cold War as a definition, uh, what it really stood for uh, within the minds of people, how it was used, I guess, to, well, in many ways, it seems justify growing military spending and budgets and and the like among other things the big in the spy game of course well i think referring to it as the cold war kind of imparted a sense of urgency throughout the whole thing um the term itself i believe george orwell was the first to use it maybe not the first to use those two words together but used in the context of a showdown between the East and West. I, I want to say it was The Atomic Bomb in You, which is a, a good essay from him back in 1946, I think, kind of really lays out a, a lot of what's going to happen. But I think that's where the uh, origin of the term Cold War came from. But referring to it that, yeah, it kept that sense of urgency. There was always the need to be vigilant, to keep stockpiling arms basically that um you know you you always had an enemy staring you down and you know i mean just calling it cold put a little bit of distinction that like yeah maybe we're not slinging lead with ivan right now but we could be wasn't it orwell who talked about this business of 
endless war mm-hmm. against ever-changing enemies. That was one of the uh, the huge themes in 1984. There's a part of that book that a lot of people don't really like this part for some reason, but I, I really did. And it's where he gets, oh boy, what's that book called? But it's like the handbook for the the underground. Fictional work. It's Emmanuel Goldstein's... Um, Boy, I, I feel stupid for drawing a, a blank on it. But, Osama, um, Osama it, bin Laden's, yeah, Emmanuel Goldstein, yeah. Osama bin Laden. <laughs> and Isn't it interesting, that. too, speaking of the whole the Jewish tie-in, what kind mm-hmm. of a name is Goldstein? Anyways, what was Orwell suggesting, yeah. like anti-Semite? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he. Um, what he's suggesting there is he's comparing him to Lenin, who was Jewish, too, I guess. So um, maybe he's just kind of making it clear. I guess giving him a name that would be... Maybe a little bit more recognizable as something that would be within Western society in Britain, but still a little alien, too, you know. So satire, I guess, really. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Dark dystopian satire of sorts. But in this book that's supposed to um, basically lay out how the world works, it talks about that. Orwell was a socialist. There's a lot of influence from Marx in this, that the capitalists could only expand so much, and they would need to get rid of excess production one way or another. And they could only sell so much to people. And one way to get rid of excess production is warfare. Not necessarily warfare where one side's going to be defeated, but just a state of perpetual warfare allows the, the capitalists to keep producing and keep consuming and like a never-ending cycle. And it explains it in there. And actually, Marx talks about that a little bit, too, in the Communist Manifesto. Endless consumption. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Endless spending. Perpetual warfare economy, which really, I guess, in many ways, America has committed itself to in a big way so hey let's just before we wrap up if you could just for a couple of minutes at least yeah, talk sure. about the stories or rumors surrounding hitler's alleged escape from out of the bunker in berlin spring of 1945 there's a bit of a tie-in i guess recently too, some sort of a confirmation perhaps even of that with the latest the trump dump as some like to refer to it and the jfk files well i know that's something that's always been Kind of a, a cultural trope that Adolf Hitler escaped um, and went to Argentina or German neo-Nazis have his brain in a jar somewhere and are going to, I don't know, hook him up to some machine and Adolf Hitler's coming back and no more Mr. Nice Guy or whatever. I don't know. I think there was always a little bit of a mystery because the Soviets would have been the first to get to his remains. And I don't think they released those. Right off the bat. I think that really fed into it, too, that, uh, you know, maybe Adolf Hitler slipped off somewhere. To be honest, my personal opinion is like, yeah, he did sink with the ship. He died there in Berlin. But there is some funny business surrounding that. Do you know the skull that they had in their possession, the Soviets, that is? Mm -hmm. Apparently, when they examined it, they found it to be that of a young female it was supposedly Hitler's skull, but it was actually oh really? Okay. It was a yeah, a woman's. Not even the age of what Eva Braun would have been at that time. I guess then you have not really tuned into. Maybe you have been following the hunting Hitler. It's sort of like a mm-hmm. mini series or reality TV show series. The History Channel has put together. 
Oh, huh, I haven't seen that. Some, yeah, I'd like to get a hold of some of those episodes if I could. I'm looking at a picture right now, the streaming slideshow that we have mm-hmm. here on YouTube. And, you know, Hitler was known to use body doubles. He had, like, at least, what, four or five? I've Stalin. heard that, that he had a few, yeah. Mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein, all good dictators do. I'm not sure if that would apply to the likes of Obama or Bush. Maybe even it'd be hard to find a body double for Trump. I guess if <laughs> really wanted to, and plastic surgery and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, you never know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they have something in place where they could have body doubles. Um, here in the United States, that is. Oh, yeah, I'd imagine. Well, I think we're going to call it a wrap and that should be pretty much a done deal before we do close things off though general Patton, i'm not sure if maybe mm-hmm. he just did a couple of minutes to speak to his role within the second world war you know he was critical for his efforts to ensuring the allied success not only that but of course uh, these so-called death camps eisenhower's death camps that have been documented in very few places, but one of the uh, books that I know of is, is entitled Other Losses. Uh, and this is up in the, we're looking at numbers there when it comes to this sort of thing. The German soldiers that were gathered together, and I guess they were looked at as enemy combatants or some stupid mm. thing where you, just as I've yeah. done, done in recent uh, times too, where it's like, oh, you don't have them as an actual like a soldier or what have you, you kind of twist things in a legalese kind of manner. It's like, well, there's enemy combat. We can treat them in a special kind of different way than if they were just on the same level as us. So we won't be found guilty of committing war crimes, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There was quite a few Germans that did die in these Eisenhower death camps, uh, these so-called other losses. How sad. Yeah, and I know the Soviets, they kept German prisoners for... I believe up to five years after the war so they had it rough there too and korea too that just reminds me a lot of these uh, prisoners of war you know there's been a lot of talk the korean war they could potentially even be some people still living former you know prisoners of war mias they're pretty old now obviously but even for the vietnam right. era i'm not don't know if you've heard about that these are the sort of oh, things yeah. that john mccain apparently knows about but just really doesn't it's too much of a political hot potato <laughs> i guess doesn't want to uh, talk about there are citizens out there who do draw this to his attention and say hey look you know both from korea and the vietnam era where these uh, these mias were whisked off to north korea of all places and then in, in some cases did end up in russia you know, I remember as a kid when, well, Rambo 2 came out, um, that kind of uh, brought that subject into the uh, the public spotlight for a while, too, where there was the prospect that we still had guys still there in Vietnam and, you know, maybe North Korea as well, too, uh, ones that made it um, or were sent to China or Russia or whatever for, for whatever reason to stay there, too. But to me, I'm a little skeptical you know, unless it was somebody that was fairly important, like people that knew a little bit too much that they would keep them. But for, say, just a, a run-of-the-mill pilot or soldier or something that gets captured, um, to me, I, I would wonder why they would want to keep them for that long. If you just say, like, slave labor, I mean, you know, slave labor is cheap without any uh, diplomatic problems, I guess, if that makes sense. English teachers, of, of English teachers. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, they're they're cheap too. They're cheap too these days. North Korea, <laughs> though, it's a little different story, I guess. So 
defectors from the West as well, too. I'm not sure if you follow the, the story, but and he just passed away actually recently, but he, he actually made his way from out of North Korea to the South back, oh, I don't know, about 10 years ago. He had a North Korean wife. He defected from the U.S. military and I guess had, I think, was stationed along the DMZ and... Yeah, there's a documentary about these guys. Um, I forgot the name of it, but it is really good. Um, I think over the course of time, there's been like maybe five guys that came over. A lot of them at about the same time. One of them, maybe it's the guy you're talking about. He became basically a a North Korean citizen. He was an actor, like in a lot of their films, always playing the, the evil American bad guy. They had a few other guys that you know, married and had families. And uh, one of them, I think towards the later years of his life, returned to the United States. Um, What he did was he had to, since he was a soldier that was AWOL, and, you know, even though it was 30 years ago or whatever, he had to report to a military post as an old man. They basically tried him for AWOL, you know, and since he's old, they put him into his military uniform. (laughs) You know, of course, he was busted down to a private, and um, I think they gave him like 30 days or something, basically just kind of a, a token slap on the wrist. But um, yeah, one of the guys eventually uh, made it back without sneaking out of North Korea or something. I think it was through kind of above board channels, but I thought that was kind of funny. You know, after 30 years, <laughs> the guy gets like 30 days or something as an old man in the brig. Charles Jenkins, age 77, dies. And that was just in the last, let's see, 2015, I guess, in the last year or two hmm. years. So, yeah, and you're exactly right. They, the way that they dressed him up in his, in, I guess, a military trial and so forth, he would prove to be something of a valuable intelligence asset as well. I oh, I'm sure, yeah. Imagine. Yes, indeed. It'd be interesting to pick his brain. The Manchurian <laughs> Candidate. That's the film yes. title, I guess. That's what we're looking for. And the Korean brainwashing. So there's another... Uh, idea maybe if you're looking for for show topics general Patton is another one i know i'd like to see it go into more detail at some point and the manchurian candidate that's actually one that i am planning on doing um probably i've got i've got a lot coming up since i'm doing this chronologically like you know around the time of 1950 and so but i'm going to do that one within the next 10 episodes or so i'd say once we get into the uh, Korean War. Excellent. And just finally then, what are your thoughts on General Patton, his role, the significance, the part that he played? You know, they talk about history and and great Mm -hmm. men and women who sometimes uh, the outcome of certain uh, events, they hang, it's like on a razor's edge and able to go one way or the other, as we saw, for example, back at the Super Summit and, uh, you know, Game 8 there with Henderson's winning goal. What of General Patton? How different of an outcome do you think there would have been had he not existed? Well, um, I guess I'll say first, General Patton's a guy that sometimes there is some historical revisionism about. Um, there are people that look back on him and say that he was a bad general. Basically, he was reckless and got more people killed than um, you know what he should have. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that I agree with that, but I'm just saying you know there are people that say that, but I think General Patton was the guy that America needed at the right time in the sense that his brashness and bravado 
kind of gave a, a real fighting character to the United States Army at a time when it was basically untested going up against battle-hearted armies. Um, his his blood-and-guts mentality, I think, really had an effect. The other um, theater, the Pacific Theater, um, you know, I was a former United States Marine, so that history is a lot more ingrained into me than, you know, the Army side of things. And, you know, we have a lot of colorful characters on that side. But Patton was, um, yeah, he was a real go-getter. He was a man of action and... Um, like I said, he, he got some early victories that put some wind in America's sails in the early part of the war. Kind of like in World War One too, when the American troops came over, you know, the guys that had been slugging it out for years kind of wondered what our medal would be. Patton was the guy that put our, our American fighting men on the map, I would say, in the early, early part from our perspective as Americans in World War II. You talking about being a former U.S. Marine, that's quite something that's uh, noteworthy. Uh, what it triggered in my mind right off the bat within the context of things was Lee Harvey Oswald. There's another show <laughs> There's another show theme that, yeah, I don't yeah. think you've tackled yet, but would be great, of course, with you know Gary Powers. And at that time, apparently, I guess Oswald was behind the Iron Curtain in Russia yes. in whatever capacity, a little shady and spooky from all indications, from what I can see here at least, but... Let's see. So Patton, and what what of Patton's demise then? Do you know much about that, how he died exactly? I don't necessarily know the circumstances, but to me, it almost seemed like kind of bizarre. It's like he had a job to do on the planet and he was done and then died because it was shortly after the war ended. Um, I can't remember the exact date, but he didn't live long into peacetime. No, he died yeah, in I think, some strange, like a little kind of car accident of sorts in i think it was germany and then he yeah. ended up in the hospital it looked like he was recovering and they were going to ship him back to the states where he was going to gather his strength back and whatnot there's it looked like all indications at that point that he was out of the woods and he would there was no problem and suddenly i believe he developed an embolism of sorts and that was it for him prior to that it's interesting to note too apparently there was like two or three at least other assassination attempts on the man Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. There's been books written mm. about this, so something huh, definitely... look into that, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah, really quite something for sure. But I think he was, yeah, he was a great man. I'm not really a big kind of gung-ho military person, per se, but when it comes to Patton and MacArthur, I give total credos and props to those guys. They were, I think, really pivotal, like Inchon, the storming of the beaches of Inchon, and the way that MacArthur, once again, he was the, this maverick, was he not? And he pissed off a lot of people in Washington, I guess. Truman, top of the list there, shortly after that, I guess, was recalled back to the States. So Yeah, it was kind of a big disconnect between what was going on in Korea and Washington. There was a big complaint among the upper American brass there. Even closer in theater, the, the commanders that would be stationed in Japan, you know, they had no clue what was actually happening up in the mountains. And that's so often, unfortunately, the case. You know, you can draw parallels to what we see happening in places like Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Iraq, Syria, or, or what have you. So, anyways, Ryan, on that note, oh, let's not forget, too, you've got some, uh, I think it's the Red Dragon Herbs. We want to hear a little bit more about oh. this product that you offer, line of products. It sounds great. What are we looking at there exactly? Thank you. 
Well, my wife and I, we have a business where we make loose leaf herbal tea blends. And we also sell just other uh, loose leaf teas and so forth. But we make a lot of different blends. And our main place we do business is the Des Moines Farmer's Market, which is a really big one. They have some 10, 20,000 people show up every Saturday during the season. But we do other little markets too. And we also sell online at reddragonherbs.net. Check that out. We've got different teas, different herbal formulas for things like, say, allergy problems. Our most popular one is our anti-inflammatory blend that has ginger, turmeric, cinnamon, apples, and lemon peel. I'm drinking one right now that we call Red Dragon, which is orange rooibos with ginger, cinnamon, uh, lemon peel, and orange. Another one that I think is kind of cool is our Turkish apple, which is based on the kind of apple tea that you would be served in a place like Istanbul where it's black tea with apples, cinnamon, cloves, uh, hibiscus, lemongrass, and orange peel. So it's kind of a spicy, citrusy apple. But yeah, that keeps me busy. Um, I've got a full-time job in a tire factory and um, you know, spend a lot of my off hours uh, making tea and a lot of my weekends selling tea. So I'm a pretty busy guy. Sounds like it. Absolutely. Uh, along with captain of the hockey team and you yeah. also recently had a, a child come along the way and um, mm-hmm. all kinds of great stuff going on. So that's super. Uh, I can just imagine the n- amount of additives and chemicals that you've got thrown into your teas too, right? <laughs> yeah, all <laughs> yeah. kinds of things you can't pronounce. Yeah, just herbs that we blend up. Um, I, I do have a garden. I grow a lot of things in my backyard, but not to the scale that we um, do this business. Um, I just kind of source uh, dry bulk herbs and, and tea from here and there and then mix them. And sure. then in my backyard, like I grow some things for my, you know, my personal use and so forth. And that's kind of how I got started with that business, actually. You know, growing things like catnip, peppermint, chamomile, lemongrass and so forth and making my own teas out of them and just decide to scale up. How many ads do you have running on various podcasts around the world? I don't. We did a brief podcast through the business talking about like some herbal things and so forth. And on the Cold War cast, I always kind of pitch that as the show sponsor. It is kind of cool because I will get some people sometimes ordering tea, you know, that are podcast listeners. So that's always cool when that happens. And there's one other podcast that has a um, premium membership program where, yeah, among other things, you get a discount with certain vendors. We have something with those guys, too. But um, that's about it for podcast advertising. So most of it, I guess, I create myself. Well, maybe we'll talk a little more about that in the after show if you uh, have the okay. time and decide to stick around. In the meantime, folks, uh, what we're looking at here, though, is, yeah, we're going to wrap things up. Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, the two Pirate Joes, of course, Emily Anderson. Uh, we've also got Odessa Woodworking and Maker Shop who dropped in for a few minutes. That was great. Johnny Canuck and whoever else was catching us live there via YouTube this week. The websites, once again, the main URLs are coldwarcast.com. If I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, just kind of looking through the show notes here. As well as you've got a profile on minds.com. You've got a personal profile there as well, Ryan Llewellyn. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, Patreon page, and I'm not sure what else. Just uh, in closing then, anything you'd like to say? We'd like to, of course, offer a, a great thanks for you having joined us here this week. Yeah, you're really welcome. Yeah. A lot. That was great, man. We really covered a lot of ground, and there's still, we could, uh, I'm sure, 
listeners as well kind of dig into things a little further with the homework they want to do and any of the conversation talking points or areas that we went with the show this week. So on that note, though, folks, I think that's about a wrap for show number 101 with Ryan Llewellyn of the Cold War Cast. Dot com until we meet again out in the high digital seas. On behalf of Captain Long John Sinclair and all the rest of the crew here on the Robin Hood, happy sailing. I know. There we be. Having carefully looked over each of our navigation panel instruments, checking every level, switch, dial, cable, knob, and pulley, by all accounts and indications, we indeed see it's time once again to drop anchor inside Mystic Bay and draw an end to another week of Pirate Radio Podcasts. Remember, if you're looking for a little more lively online action, Keep in mind, we've likely got yet another great free-flowing Rogues Gallery after show coming up for the next hour in either Skype, Google Hangouts, or Peer.in. Also, if you've in any way enjoyed or found yourself benefiting from the shows we've tirelessly produced over the past two years, you might want to drop by our Patreon tip jar page and lend a little support. Half of all network donations go directly to charity. Help to keep those numbers growing over on Patreon, and we'll be able to extend even more of a generous pirate hand. Looking forward now to the balance of 2018, we're still not quite yet booked. So if you yourself have a new, novel, intriguing, or otherwise underreported idea unique individual, or pressing item in mind, be sure to either drop us a line directly over on WPRPN.com or fire us a quick email via PirateOneRadio at gmail.com. We're always open to exploring fresh creative suggestions, intriguing guest ideas, cutting-edge discussion topics, and captivating themes. You can further embark on your own personal pirate journey by either liking, commenting on, subscribing to, or just following us via virtually any mainstream social media platform, including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Minds.com. So don't forget to become engaged. Until we meet again out on the high digital seas, I'm your host as always. The ship's chief communications officer, Jaffy Ryder. Tally ho.